Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Damania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a two-year-old with severe pallor and oxygen desaturation. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A two-year-old presents to the PICU with severe pallor and oxygen requirement. The patient went for a routine check with their primary care, who noted that the patient was very pale. He sent the patient to the emergency department, and an initial hemoglobin revealed a level of 1.5 grams per deciliter. Per mother, she is otherwise healthy, but a very picky eater. She also reports the patient drinks milk as a soothing adjunct at night consuming between 12 to 36 ounces of milk per day. There is no family history of anemia or any other blood disorders. There's also no recent illness in the child. The mother had a normal, spontaneous, full-term delivery. The patient is up-to-date on her immunizations. Per mother, developmental milestones are normal. And mom also denies any history of decreased activity in the child. Given the severely low hemoglobin, the patient was admitted to the PICU. Let's go ahead and transition into some key history and physical exam components of this case. Pradeep, let's start us off with history. What are some key history features in this child? Rahul, this child has severe pallor. This child is a picky eater, consumes excessive milk. But important pertinent negatives include there's no obvious blood loss, no petechiae, bruising, or jaundice seen in this child. What's on our physical exam here, Rahul? Delving more into this case, this patient was hypertensive, tachycardic to the 140s, and 10th percentile for growth. On physical exam, the patient was in no acute distress. Her lips, gums, and conjunctiva were pale, as mentioned in the history. She had a systolic ejection murmur on her cardiac exam. As a pertinent negative, she had no hepatosplenomegaly. She's also had no rash, bruising, or petechiae. So one of the summary points which I want to bring up is that the lack of hepatosplenomegaly may indicate that the patient has no signs of extramedullary hematopoiesis. Remember, extramedullary means outside of the bone marrow medulla. Patients with hemolytic processes resulting in anemia may present with signs of scleral icterus, jaundice, and hepatosplenomegaly. This is all resulting from increased red cell destruction. In fact, in an emergency department setting, the clinical detection of jaundice was found to have a sensitivity and specificity of about 70%. So when you look at jaundice, not only are you going to be thinking of a biliary cause, which is the outside of the scope of this episode, but you also want to be thinking of hemolysis. So Rahul, to continue with our case, what were the patient's labs at presentation? Absolutely. Let's delve into the uh, CBC in a little bit more detail. Our white blood cell count was 8.5 thousand. RBCs were low at 1.14. Hemoglobin, as mentioned, was 1.5 grams per deciliter. The hematocrit was 6.1, MCV was 53.5, and the patient had an elevated red cell distribution width, also known as RDW, and it measured at 38%. The patient's initial platelet count was 50,000, and the patient had a reticulocyte count of 1.1%. Looking at this under the microscope, the peripheral smear revealed no blast, 
thrombocytopenia with occasional medium-sized platelets, ghost cells, initiocytosis, poikilocytosis, which appears most consistent with our underlying diagnosis, which is iron deficiency anemia. I think it was very interesting, Pradeep, that this patient actually had thrombocytopenia. Absolutely. Typically, with iron deficiency anemia, there is actually thrombocytosis because in iron deficiency anemia, there's increase in erythropoietin production by the kidneys. And this erythropoietin very closely mimics thrombopoietin, which stimulates platelets. In fact, both act via the non-TK-JAK-STAT pathway. So, okay, to summarize, we have a two-year-old with severe anemia, most likely secondary to iron deficiency. As you think about a case, Rahul, uh, what would be in your differential? I think, Pradeep, it's very important for us to categorize the patient with acute severe anemia presenting to the PICU in the following categories. Number one, increased blood loss. Number two, decreased or impaired production, such as bone marrow failure. Or number three, peripheral blood destruction such as hemolysis. So yet again, let's talk about each one in detail, but blood loss, decreased or impaired production, and increased destruction are going to be the three major categories. Let's start with blood loss. Now, when it comes to blood loss, this could be internal or external blood loss. Usually we're going to be thinking about trauma, excessive blood draws, so iatrogenic, or some sort of post-surgical type of complication. Typically, initially, this gives rise to a normal chromic normocytic anemia, which can then progress into a microcytic anemia. Rahul, when it comes to decrease or impaired production, one has to think of deficiency of substances that are needed for hemoglobin and RBC production, such as iron, vitamin B12, etc. Now, depression of bone marrow due to infection, chemicals, pharmacologic agents, or immune mechanisms can also result in impaired production. Bone marrow aplasia can be idiopathic, with or without congenital anomalies. Infiltration of the bone marrow due to malignancies such as leukemia, Hodgkin's disease, neuroblastoma, etc., can also result in decrease or impaired production. I think that's a great point, Pradeep. And I would add, when it comes to infections, we also worry about parvovirus B19, which can cause a pure red cell aplasia, especially in patients who have chronic hemolytic diseases such as sickle cell. All right, let's go through the third category, increased blood destruction. Now, this can be due to intrinsic defects of the red blood cells, such as hereditary spherocytosis, defects of hemoglobin, such as sickle cell disease, thalassemia syndromes, or even enzyme deficiencies, such as pyruvate kinase deficiency, for example. Now, extrinsic factors are going to be a little bit more immune-mediated. So we're going to be thinking about drugs, which can lead to anemia. Remember that drugs can act like haptins, and those haptins can then consume your red blood cells. We're also going to be thinking about some of those non-immune mechanisms that are related to certain toxins, sepsis, hemolytic uremic syndrome, and TTP, which can affect both the RBC lineage as well as the platelet lineage. When we think about these intrinsic and extrinsic deficits, let's take paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinemia, G6PD deficiency. These patients are going to have peripheral destruction in addition to pallor and they're going to have the evidence of hemolysis on their physical exam. These patients are going to be jaundiced. These patients may have increased indirect bilirubin. 
They may have erythrocyte fragmentation on the peripheral smear. And we also want to put into the differential, whenever we see erythrocyte fragmentation, a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, some sort of process that is occurring within the small blood vessels. Now, whenever we're thinking about hemolysis, you want to be thinking about the reticulocyte count. Typically, there's going to be an increased reticulocyte count during hemolysis. The bone marrow, if you looked at it under the microscope, will have erythroid hyperplasia. Immature red blood cells are now starting to be pumped out from the bone marrow. One of the key things for us to recognize in immune-mediated red blood cell disorders is the presence of antibodies or even complements, such as in paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinemia, both of those processes, you're going to get erythrocyte membrane damage, and then you are going to get hemolysis. Now, very important for us to recognize that whenever you're thinking about autoimmune hemolytic anemia or the presence of antibodies, make sure you're sending your DAT or your direct Coombs test. So let's go into a little bit of the literature now. We looked at a prospective study by Bateman et al., and this was published in 2008 in the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine. And what they reported was that 73% of blood loss in the PICU is attributable to blood draws. And this brings up a very important clinical point. We need to limit both the number as well as frequency of blood tests in our patients, especially if they are not helping us make a change in the patient management. So one of the things that we do on rounds is go through at the end of our presentation, what are the various labs the patient is going to be getting on a daily basis? Conservative blood draws will help reduce blood transfusions in the PICU, and this also relates to the 2015 campaign by SCCM, which was the Choose Wisely campaign, and that advised us as intensivists to not order diagnostic tests at regular intervals such as every day, but rather in response to specific clinical questions. So in summary, make sure if you're sending a lab, what's your specific clinical question? All right, I've talked a lot. Why don't you go ahead and give us a brief synopsis of the physiology of iron metabolism in the human body? Rahul, iron metabolism is very unique in that iron balance is achieved by control of absorption rather than by excretion. About 1.5 milligram of iron is lost from the cells that are exfoliated from the skin and gut and the urinary tract every day. About twice that amount, that is about three milligrams per day, is lost by menstruating women, and about three and a half times that is lost during pregnancy. Dietary iron is either in the form of heme iron, which is from hemoglobin and myoglobin of animal sources, or non-heme iron from salts of non-animal sources. The mucosal cell of the small intestine, primarily the duodenum and ileum, ultimately controls the absorption of iron in the body. Once taken up by the mucosal cell, the iron is either incorporated into the ferritin of the mucosal cell, which is typically sloughed off in three to four days, or transferred to the portal circulation of the liver with the help of mucosal cell transferrin. Cellular metabolism of iron is mediated by three proteins, transferrin, transferrin receptor, and ferritin. Transferrin production is increased in iron deficiency states. Iron storage exists in the soluble easily available form ferritin or insoluble, more stable fraction hemocederin. Ferritin is widely distributed in all cells, 
whereas hemosiderin is primarily located in the liver, spleen, and bone marrow. A serum ferritin of less than 10 to 12 micrograms uh, per ml is indicative of depletion of iron reserves. To summarize, iron metabolism uptake occurs primarily in the duodenum. Thus, always watch out for patients with duodenal disease, your short gut patients, celiac patients, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. Also, transferrin transports iron, and ferritin represents the storage form of iron. Rahul, a frequently asked question on the pediatric critical care boards is about oxygen content and oxygen delivery. Can you shed some light on this with respect to this case? Absolutely. And I would encourage you listeners to check out episode 33, auction content and auction delivery, to go into this topic in a little bit more detail. As a review from that episode, the formula for auction content is the following. 1.34 times your hemoglobin times your auction saturation plus the quantity 0.003 times your P little AO2. Now, if we assume that the P little AO2 is 100 and O2 saturation is 100%, i.e. you have normal lungs, our oxygen content for this patient who had a hemoglobin very low of 1.5 is the following. So 1.34 times 1.5 times 1 plus a very small quantity, which comes down to 2.31 mLs of O2 per 100 milliliters of blood as our oxygen content for this patient. Now, Pradeep, let's just say if this patient is transfused very slowly to a hemoglobin of six, the oxygen content actually increases from 2.31 to 8.34 milliliters of oxygen per 100 mLs of blood. Now, conversely, let's say we put the patient on 100% oxygen and the PaO2 rises to 713 millimeters of mercury. The oxygen content of this patient with the hemoglobin of 1.5 will go from 2.31 to about 4.2. So either we have to increase the hemoglobin or if unable to transfuse, increase the P little AO2 as shown in our calculations above. But here's the summary. What gives us more bang for our buck is increasing hemoglobin concentration. This in turn will increase our oxygen content. So in summary, I think it is great to practice calculations of oxygen content, especially when you have a patient who has a critically low hemoglobin or for a patient for whom blood transfusion is indicated. I would also recommend you all as listeners to read the TAXI guidelines published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, which guides intensivists, pediatric intensivists on PRBC transfusion in the pediatric ICU. All right, Pradeep, let's get a little bit deeper into this case. If you had to work up this patient with severe anemia, what would be your diagnostic approach? Great question, Rahul. I think for this patient, I would send a CBC with a differential, reticulocyte count, and a peripheral smear, a comprehensive metabolic panel, urine analysis, and test the stool for guaiac. Infectious workup should include a respiratory viral panel and a testing for parvovirus, hemoglobin electrophoresis, a serum lead level. If patient has pancytopenia despite packed red cell replacement, she should need a workup for bone marrow arrest failure process, uh, such as a peripheral flow and even a bone marrow aspiration or a biopsy. Thank you so much for highlighting all of these diagnostics, which we could send. 
I do want to highlight that no single test or even a combination of tests reliably documents iron deficiency anemia in all clinical situations. I would also add that the review of a peripheral smear is an essential part of any anemia evaluation. Even if the patient's red blood cell indices are normal, review of the peripheral blood smear may reveal abnormal cells that can help us identify the cause of anemia. But we need to couple this diagnostic workup with the good history and physical exam. So Rahul, if a history, physical, and diagnostic investigations lead us to a diagnosis of severe iron deficiency anemia in this child, what would be your general management framework from the PQ standpoint? That's a great question. And here's where the podcast gets even more practical. When a patient is admitted to the PICU with severe anemia, the usual principles of good PICU care in terms of monitoring, management of airway, and hemodynamics should precede the workup and therapy of severe iron deficiency anemia. I also want to make sure that the patient also has great access because we are going to be transfusing this patient to good peripheral IVs, one that can draw back so that we can send the required labs will be helpful. Now, we will be working very closely with our hematology colleagues and the nutritionists. When the hemoglobin is less than 5 grams per deciliter, the patient should be given sequential small aliquots of blood. Typically, you are going to be transfusing 2.5 mLs per kilo very slowly over 3 to 4 hours. We want to have frequent assessment of the hemoglobin and hematocrit, as well as reassess the patient for any signs of fluid overload and heart failure. Once the hemoglobin is greater than 5 grams per deciliter, we can start giving a little bit more blood, 5 mLs per kilo over 2 to 3 hours, and waiting at least 2 hours in between aliquots. But the summary here, go slow and reassess. Yeah, Rahul, at the same time, the patient is taking uh, good POs, uh, they can start iron supplementation, which is typically started at 3 milligram per kilo per dose twice a day. A uh, nutritionist consult is very important. The nutritionist will typically recommend limiting milk intake and encouraging iron-containing foods and eating a healthy toddler diet. Iron should not be taken with calcium, but should be taken with vitamin C, such as orange juice, which promotes its absorption. Referral to social work to get the family necessary support may also be needed. And especially if there is concern for lead poisoning, the home may need to be inspected. Awesome. I think that's a great point. And I also want to bring to surface that it is essential for us to involve the pediatric hematology team for appropriate workup, management, as well as follow-up. This concludes our episode on acute anemia in the PICU. We hope you found value in our short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our doc on call management cards. If you're interested in learning more regarding acute severe anemia, please refer to Furman and Zimmerman's textbook of pediatric critical care, chapter 91, Transfusion Medicine. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by myself, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you.